You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And before we get there and before we read, um, I'd like you to do a little thought experiment with me. Imagine, um, well, I'm, I'm going to base this a little bit on, uh, on some knowledge that you hopefully have of Genesis and a little bit of Bible knowledge here. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, created the world, everything in it, and all the creatures, and all. he also created people, created Adam and Eve. And it was perfect, and it was good. And then sin entered the picture, and the curse happened. And then Eve conceived her first child, and the first baby was born. The thought experiment I'd like you to have this morning, um, don't put too much credence in this, it's just a thought experiment. Um, But what if the timeline was a little different? What if Eve was able to conceive and bear a child before the fall? What if Satan took a little bit longer to mess everything up? What would it look like for a family to grow and flourish in the Garden of Eden? We never got to see that. That's not the way the story goes. That's not the way that uh, it actually happened. But imagine that. What would be different about that family compared to our families? Uh, Well, for one, the marriage that produced the family would be a perfect marriage. There would be no sin in the equation. Husband and wife perfectly uh, meeting each other's needs and complementing each other in a way that glorifies God and shows off his attributes to the world. Perfect bliss in marriage. (laughs) Um, How else would it change? Well, for another thing, uh, mom would have experienced no pain or suffering at all in childbirth. That would be real different. All of the joy and satisfaction and beauty of a newborn baby with none of the pain, none of the agony. Um, How would it have changed work? Because Adam had a job. Adam's job was to cultivate the garden and to take dominion over the earth and name it and, and have it be his possession on behalf of God. All of the joy of a hard day's work without any of the hard Work is still there, and parenting is still there. Children would still be there, assuming this timeline. Can you imagine parenting a child who does not have a sin nature? (laughs) No, you cannot. Maybe this is your first time imagining that. Parenting a child who you don't ever have to correct. He doesn't come with all the information. You still need to instruct him in the way he should go. You still need to guide him and lead him and direct him, but you don't ever need to discipline him for wrong that he has done. All of the beauty and joy of bringing up someone in the faith as your child with none of the pain, none of the sin, none of the agony, that is glorious stuff, and it seems a little fantastical to us, especially the child part. We know that that didn't even ever exist. There was no baby born in Eden. But Jesus came into this world to bring us back to Eden, in a sense, to mend that relationship that we have between God and between each other. We get a promise of a future perfection 
where we will live in a new heaven and new earth in perfection with God, with no sin between us, with no sin between us and God. That is our guaranteed future if we are in Christ because of his sacrifice for us. He undid the curse. And so if that's what Jesus came to accomplish for us, and that's true for us, we need to look to that as we live out this life still in a world that is touched by the curse. That future is guaranteed to us, and we have it as our birthright, being born again. We have a glimpse of heaven that is entitled to us in the way that we can choose to live today. It's just a matter of whether or not we submit and allow it to thrive there. So in Ephesians chapter 6, your Bibles are already open there. Let's, with that in mind, let's read what Paul has to say about the redeemed family. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So to give us context, we are picking up in the middle of a section, and that section sits near the end of the book of Ephesians. And this section is where Paul is giving instructions for how Christians ought to behave in different spheres of life. Um, remember the context of the whole letter, though. This is Church Beyond Imagination. That's the title we've given to it. More than half of Ephesians was spent talking about this big picture, supernatural way of understanding what the church is. And he uses that, that big picture understanding of church. He uses that as a launching point for all of the more practical teaching of the second half of the book. And so he's already told them of how this, this big cosmic reality of church should motivate them and empower them in all of their church relationships. And he's already told them how it should transform their personal conduct and the way that they live their lives and fight sin. But then he starts this last section of teaching aimed at specific different relationships in the home. It is essentially the code of conduct for Christian households. Uh, Pastor Ben alluded to this last week. This, this style of teaching, this genre of writing that Paul starts getting into here, it, it lists out the expectations for domestically relating to one another. That is called, in, in this time period where Paul's writing, that's known as a household code. Paul did not invent it, this style of writing that he chooses to use here. The household code was a well-known pattern for communicating what the expectations are for a family unit, and especially under the Roman Empire. And that's who was in charge at this time. Even though we know that the Roman Empire eventually collapsed, it was one of the most stable and well-organized empires in all of history. If you know anything about the different empires who controlled big chunks of the earth, a lot of them were just conquerors. I think specifically of like the Mongols, the you know, Genghis Khan just got all his warriors together and literally sent them in every direction to pillage as much as they could. That was the plan, and it worked. They conquered the biggest chunk of earth that anyone had ever conquered up to that point. 
but that empire fizzled out and died because they had no guiding principles. They just took it all over. Rome was a little different. Rome was well-organized and structured. They wanted this to last. They didn't just conquer and pillage the world and then call it an empire. They thought long and hard about how to create the best way of living. And when they found something else that seemed to be better, they took that instead. They did that multiple times. They wanted to make the best cities, the, the best that a nation could possibly be. They wanted the people that they conquered, and they did do that, they wanted the people that they conquered to wish that they were Roman the entire time, to be happy to be conquered by the Romans. And truthfully, even though the Roman Empire was brutal and evil most of the time, they did get a lot of things right. The United States borrowed pretty heavily from the government structure of Rome when it created its own form of government, and it's worked decently well for us for a good while. And that's because Rome really valued common sense when it came to governing people. And without even realizing it, all of their greatest thinkers and philosophers and scholars, they picked up on God's created order of things and tried to use it for their own purposes to add longevity to their empire. And for a while, it kind of worked. Ben said this last week, Rome knew that as goes the family, so goes the nation. They understood that a nation is not just a big collection of individual people. It is a large number of families. And those families, if they're not healthy, the empire cannot be healthy and it won't last. They wanted, they used this term called the pater familias, the father of the household. The head of household was the, the oldest, highest ranking man in his family. They wanted him to be a model Roman citizen, almost like a, a tiny Caesar I almost said little Caesar. I chose tiny instead. Almost like a tiny Caesar overseeing his own kingdom and, and doing that for the good of the empire, his kingdom being his household. He had legal authority to make decisions about everyone and everything in his household. He was responsible for his family's reputation and for their moral uprightness, for their education, and their good citizenship. So the pater familias, the man of the house, was the enforcer of this Roman household code. The code laid out the authority structure of the home. And it's basically saying something like this, for the health and well-being of the empire, relate to each other like this. To promote and uphold the Roman way of life, live this way. So Paul is taking that style of writing, he's giving a household code, but not for Rome, not for Roman citizens, but for the kingdom of God. He's saying to uphold and promote the principles of God's kingdom, to promote the health and the flourishing of God's people, here is how your household ought to be ordered. Pastor Ben already led us through the first relationship in the household code of conduct for God's kingdom. We talked about marriage last week. The big idea from the text last week was use the marriage union to spotlight Christ's beautiful union with his church. So to promote the principles of God's kingdom, to promote the health of his people, your marriage should be a reflection of the gospel. So our big idea from the text today is this, to promote the principles of God's kingdom and the health of God's people, children should obediently honor and parents 
should lovingly disciple. It's a bit of a mouthful, but all three of those things are here. The furtherance of God's people, his kingdom, children obediently honoring, and parents lovingly discipling. And one detail about the way that those household codes usually work is it usually goes subordinate and then authority figure. It addresses the one who's under authority first before addressing the one who has authority over them. So Paul follows that model. Paul speaks to children first. Children obediently honor. Let's read just those first one and a half verses here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And we'll stop there for now. First of all, kids in the room, there's a good number of you today, and I'm glad for that. Uh, do you realize that God, in this passage, is talking directly to you? Sometimes we can forget that. Uh, we, we know that the Bible is the Word of God. We say that all the time. We know that it was God-breathed. That's one of the first passages of Scripture that we usually memorize. But that can sound a little mystical if you let it. It can cause you to forget how plain and direct this is. The Bible is how God speaks to us. This Bible verse is addressed to children. If you're a child, this is God talking to you. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, whether you're a child or an adult, you can hear what he's saying when you read. You don't hear a magic voice, but you read the words of Scripture, and you can tell the Spirit in you can cause you to tell that in that moment, God is speaking that message to you. It can happen anywhere in Scripture. The Holy Spirit can apply a text to convict you of sin or encourage your faith, no matter where you are in the Bible. But sometimes it's really direct and obvious. You're, you get called out sometimes. Kids, this is your time. Through his word, God is saying, hey, hey, listen up. Pay attention. This is for you. You need to hear this. You need to understand it. This is God's design for you, for what your life should look like right now. You ready? Here it is. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let's look at that first word, obey. It means what it sounds like it means. You listen to them and you do what they say. That might be the simplest, most basic, most obvious thing in the Bible. And because it's so basic, you might be tempted to stop listening, children and adults alike. But remember, this is God talking to you. If God showed up in this room right now like he did on Mount Sinai with smoke and darkness that's blacker than night and lightning and flashes of fire and a voice that, that thunders and shakes the ground when he speaks, if he showed up like that and he spoke to you, no matter what he said, you would listen. Kids, that same God is speaking to you this morning. Listen to what he's saying. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Again, obey means to listen to, to do what they ask of you. And this is saying that God has put parents in complete authority over their children. And children are having a harder and harder time following this command because our world is changing. 
There are people who are trying to undo the family structure as God designed it. They want parents to give up their authority over their kids. They want kids under the authority of the schools or the state or the community or maybe even out from under authority altogether. There are all these other voices that are growing louder and louder by the day. And what does the voice of God say? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents have authority over every aspect of their child's life. And the Lord says that is a good thing. That's how it's supposed to be. Not because parents are perfect. Not because they're always right. But because that was how it was designed to work. So we get obey your parents. It's pretty basic. There's no wiggle room there. You have complete authority, parents, over your children. Children, you must live your way, live your life in a way that shows that you understand that your parents are in charge. What they say goes. But what does it mean to obey your parents in the Lord? Well, for starters, it is Paul putting Jesus' stamp of approval on this thing. He's saying that this is what Jesus taught about children and their parents. And that's important to clarify, especially for this early audience, because a lot of things changed when Jesus came. His sacrifice did away with the temple system. There's no physical temple that Christians go to. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no need for all these purity laws of the Old Testament. He did away with those. Jew and Gentile and slave and free, man and woman, they're all completely equal in Christ. Jesus broke down all kinds of barriers. Lots of things changed when Jesus came, but he didn't break down everything. Some were meant to stay up. Some were there before the Garden of Eden ever experienced sin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord means Jesus wants it this way. He designed it to work this way. In another one of Paul's household texts to a different church in Colossians, he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. But more than that, him saying, in the Lord, that lets you know that he's describing the ideal here. The ideal family is one where believing parents who are walking with the Lord exercise their loving authority over believing children who are also walking with the Lord. That's the ideal. That's that Eden family that we were looking for. And we know this fact, every believer is growing more and more in holiness, looking more and more like Jesus. So in the ideal family, mom and dad are parenting in the way that Jesus would parent. They're parenting in the Lord. But we've got a pretty glaring problem here. You may pick up on it. Mom and dad are not Jesus. The ideal family is, is it seems out of reach because mom and dad won't always make the right choices. So does this verse mean that kids are allowed to ignore their parents the second that they fail to act like Jesus? Uh, the short answer is no, but let's get into it. It's not just mom and dad who are supposed to be acting like Jesus. The believing children are held to that standard too. They're believers. Think of Mary and Joseph's situation. They parented Jesus himself. We're going to start into hypotheticals a bit here, but we have good reason to speculate some of these things. Um, Jesus became human. 
He was fully God and fully man. But when he was six, he was fully God and fully little boy. He was every bit as much of a little boy as the others, but without sin. Think of Joseph and Mary's situation here. They were godly parents, to be sure. We have no reason to believe otherwise. But they inevitably sinned against each other and sinned against their son. My question for you, and my question for you kids, is would Jesus have used his parents' sin against him? as an excuse to ignore their authority. No. Even though he was God, true God, he was still their child in his humanity, and he submitted himself to them. Why? Because it's right. Because it pleases the Lord. Because this is how God designed it to work, to promote the health of God's people. Children obey their parents. Jesus only ever did the will of his heavenly father, and while he was a human child, the will of his heavenly father was to obey his parents, even though they sinned. So, kids, if you have imperfect parents, and all of you do, if you're still a kid, you still obey. Now, this doesn't happen often, but it's entirely possible for children to be more spiritually mature than their parents. What often will bring this about is when a child comes to genuine faith, but mom and dad don't. Maybe they brought them to, uh, to VBS or something, or a, a friend invited them, and they hear the gospel, but mom and dad are either false Christians or not Christians at all. You do see this from time to time. How do you obey parents who aren't Christians at all, who don't have God's ideals for his his kingdom at heart. Paul doesn't give us a bunch of case studies here, but the principle is the same here as in every authority structure that scripture endorses. And this principle is, here it is, you obey completely those who are in authority over you unless they command you to do something that God forbids or they forbid you to do something that God commands. We get an example of this in Acts 5 when talking about submitting to government. Uh, Peter and the other apostles were preaching the gospel. This is the early church was just starting, and they were arrested, and they were told not to preach the gospel, not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. And Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men, saying, we want to obey your laws. We have no interest in being lawbreakers we intend to submit to your authority, but we've been given orders by someone who outranks you, and we have no choice but to disobey you in order to obey him. That same kind of thing can come into play for children and for believing children and unbelieving parents. To put it another way, kids, is to say that you can only ever disobey your parents if they command you to sin or they command you to not do something which the Lord has, has commanded of you, which is sin. <laughs> An example of this, my mother came to faith at a young age, but my grandmother did not. And she stopped taking my mom to church after somebody there personally offended her. She said, we're not going anymore. But my mom was a zealous seven-year-old new believer. And she knew 
that it was right for her to gather with God's people on the Lord's day. So every Sunday morning, my mother put on her play clothes as if she was going to her friend's house with her Sunday dress folded up in a backpack. And she would sneak away to church against her mother's will. Now, could she have done that in a way that was less deceptive, was, was more righteous, maybe, probably? It's not a perfect example. But that is a true story. And it's an example of someone who understands the reality here. You obey in everything those who are in authority over you until obeying them would be disobeying the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But that's not the only thing that's told to the kids here. Verse 2 starts with this. Honor your father and mother. So, Obedience is expected from children while they're under their parents' authority. But a lot of that, a lot of that obedience is habit-driven. If children are taught obedience and it, and it sticks, their habits change. They, they know how to behave in certain situations. That's the hope. It often will keep them out of trouble. Their thinking will change, too. They're better suited, in general, for success and happiness in life if they learn how to submit to authority while they're young. This is what kept the Roman Empire alive. This kind of works if you just change people's habits and their thinking. And that obedience can even help make it easier to understand how to submit to your heavenly father someday. And that's all good stuff, but it mainly has to do with your head and your hands. It doesn't necessarily address the heart. You can obey. You can obey someone and still hate them. In the redeemed household, children don't obey because, just because dad said so. They don't obey out of fear. They obey in order to show honor to their father and mother because it's what God has for them. The word here for honor means to show esteem, to think highly of, to respect, to revere. If you're a kid and you want to honor your parents, you acknowledge that they have lived more life than you. They've seen more things. They have more experience. They know things that you don't know. You look at everything that is good and godly in your parents and you say, I want to be like that when I grow up. You honor them. And that doesn't stop when you grow up. Kids, you will one day grow up and make your own choices for your life. When you're an adult, you don't ask mom and dad's permission for every little thing that you do. You won't always need to obey their commands in the same way that you do now. But for the rest of your life, you must always honor them. That's true for adults in the room as well. Treat them with respect. Thank God for them. Speak highly of them. Believe the best about them, regardless of what kind of a parent they were to you. That will always be part of how you love them. Let's keep reading. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So I was torn as to what to call this next heading. 
Um, and I ended with the provocative one, the promise of prosperity. <laughs> I didn't know if I wanted to put promise in quotation marks or prosperity with a question mark at the end, but um, it's a little, uh, it's a little clickbaity. We'll get into it. What an interesting thing to tack onto this command for children. If you're taking your time while you're reading, this should cause you to pause for a moment. Because when we talk about in church, or when we sing about the promises of God, we're usually talking about the things that God declared about himself in his word, that we have faith that these things are true and that, that feeds our faith. Something that we we know in faith to be true. Something like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is good and forgiving, abounding in love to all who call upon him. Stuff like that. Those are promises of God that we cling to. For more general, temporary good things, we will look often to like the book of Proverbs. It has general wisdom, but they're not promises. Proverbs 12, 11 says, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread. That is not always true. Why is it in the Bible? Because it's generally true. This is a proverbial wisdom. In general, when you work hard, usually you end up with something to show for it. When you till your land, you have plenty of bread. But sometimes there's a drought. Sometimes other things happen. It's not a promise. This part of verse 3 sounds like a proverb. It sounds like general wisdom. Train the child in the way he should go. When he is older, he will not depart from it. Sometimes you train a child the way they should go, and they depart from it anyway. It sounds like general wisdom. But why is it called a promise? Certainly, certainly you can find examples of people who obeyed their parents, who honored their father and mother with all godliness, and then still suffered misfortune, and died of some tragic illness. That happens. That happens all the time in this cursed world that we live in. How can Paul say that this is a promise? How can God be trusted if this promise doesn't come true? So if that question rose up in your mind while you're reading this, my hope is that you don't just go, hmm, that's weird, and then skip over it. My, my prayer is that when you face difficulties or Confusion as you study God's word, take note of them and hunt them down. Write them down and, and look for answers, whether in that moment or, or later. Try to find somewhere else in scripture where that subject is talked about. See if you can learn anything about it by cross-referencing. Go on, going on little hunts like that always, always will be worth your while. You can think of it as a treasure hunt. <laughs> Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find the bigger nuggets of gold. So if you were puzzled by this promise, the first place that you should think of is the place that Paul's quoting here. You should go to the Old Testament. You should go to Exodus 20, where Paul's quoting from, the number five of the Ten Commandments. And when you read Exodus 20, uh, things actually get weirder. <laughs> because Paul says the fifth commandment, he says this is the first one with a promise. Um, but if you, have, if you have Exodus open in front of you, Verses 4 through 6 are interesting. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or the likeness of anything in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow before them or serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the, of the, 
of, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep me, so who love me and keep my commandments. How is that not a promise? He said, this is what I'm going to do. You break this commandment, this will happen. You keep this commandment, this will happen. How is that not a promise? How can Paul say that this is the first promise with a commandment, or other way around, the first commandment with a promise? Well, the Greek word for first doesn't have to only mean number one on the list. It can also mean primary, most important. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. This is the most important commandment with a promise. But there's more to it. And then one final detail that gives us our clue to make sense of this. Read verse 12 here. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord gives you. We're back in Ephesians here. If you're looking at Exodus, did you notice anything? Paul stopped quoting mid-sentence. Your copy of Ephesians might say that it might go well with you and that you might live long on the earth. Or it might say, live long in the land. The Greek word there for, for earth, land, or dirt, or ground, or soil, depending on the context. So in Exodus, it says, you may live long in the land that I'm giving to you. That's the part that Paul fails to quote. Based on what you might already know about Exodus and what Moses was doing, where was Moses trying to take them? To the promised land. God was giving that first part of his law, the Ten Commandments, he was giving that to his chosen people who were supposed to live by this law in the promised land. And how did that go? Not well. <laughs> they, they didn't even make it until Moses was halfway down the mountain before they started worshiping other gods. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their failure to love God and keep his law. And then when they finally got to the promised land, they made a big mess of it. So that's a specific place. What does all of that mean, though? And, and why does Paul do a partial quotation here? He says, honor your father and mother. It's the primary commandment tied to the promise that you would live long. What Paul's doing here is he's taking it away from the specific, limited context of the Israelites in the promised land, and he is broadening it out. This is not a promise that every individual who does this will live long and prosper, even though there is some general wisdom that supports that. This is a promise that God's people will live long. God's people will last. They will go on from generation to generation, and they will not die out. God's church will not fail. And what is the primary way that God's people stay together over the years? We've said it before, as goes the family, so goes the nation, the culture. As goes the family, so go God's people. To promote the principles of God's kingdom and the health and flourishing of his people, children must obediently honor. If all of our families here at Oak Hill, if we raise rebellious, wayward children, we will not live long in the land as a church, will fall apart within a generation. We can't let it happen. We must not. 
We trust God to use us to fulfill his promise to keep his people together and cause them to prosper. We trust him for that. Let's keep reading. Finally, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We said that sometimes, in, in some situations, a child can be more spiritually mature than their parents, but the opposite situation is a lot more common. Mom and dad are believers. They want to honor God in their marriage. And then by some strange happenstance, mom gives birth to a little sinner. How could that have happened? Um, this subject has become very real to me and to Heidi in a whole new way this past few weeks. If you haven't heard it yet, echoing through the halls, um, Adelaide has started a new habit that her godly parents did not teach her. Um, if ever something does not go her way, or if she wants something and isn't getting it fast enough, she will let out this little shriek of indignation, and it's new. She did not used to do that. It's different from all the other cries that she used to make when there's a real problem. It is this high-pitched, loud, and shrill sound. And at first, you, you, would, you, you permit it. it. It sounds like this incidental thing. She's making weird noises. She's a baby. She's learning um, but it has become clear to us, this is intentional. She is communicating with us, and there is sin involved. And so Heidi and I are planning now for how we will discipline that heart attitude, which we're starting to see rise up in her. We're planning now for how to replace that bad habit and to train her in righteousness. She's a baby. We get that. We don't expect her to get saved tomorrow and be memorizing scripture and evangelizing by Tuesday. We are convinced, though, that this is the role that God has for us to play in her life. We are to bring her up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The word here for discipline, it involves the idea of correction. They will not start out doing the right thing. <laughs> they will do the wrong thing, rest assured. To discipline them in this method is, is to stop them from doing wrong, to reprove them, showing them that sin has painful consequences, and then to show them the way of righteousness, model it for them, repeat as many times as needed. And this takes dedication and a lot, a lot of self-sacrifice from mom and dad to parent this way. And it is way easier to just throw empty threats at them, or even easier to just give them their way. It seems like it'll feel good in the moment if you just yell at them and put them in their place. Or if none of those things work, and they are pushing you to your breaking point, you might be tempted to spank them in a fit of anger. That is the easy way out. The phrase provoke to anger, it means to stir up wrath, to bring about anger, to exasperate, to frustrate. This is not Paul telling dads to not annoy their kids. 
although this is just a free one for me. Dads, don't annoy your kids. <laughs> don't do that on purpose. It's not cool. It's not funny. Um, but when you, when you do that, when you take the easy way out in parenting, you frustrate and exasperate your child. When you treat them unfairly and you act out of selfishness, you stir them up to anger. You put a stumbling block in front of their obedience to the Lord. When you lord your authority over them and you deflate them and put them down just to remind them that you're the boss, you embitter their heart against you and against the gospel. All of that stirs up wrath. It's, it frustrates them. It is the opposite of loving them. If you take the easy way out, your child will be the one who suffers the most for it, not you. Instead, parents, what could it look like for us to administer Christ-like correction to them? What would it take from you to get your children to understand that you are providing them this discipline because you love them and because God entrusted it to you and entrusted them to you? And then, parents are called to bring children up in the instruction of the Lord. Not just correct them, but positively bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. I phrased the big idea that parents need to lovingly disciple. Disciple means learner. Someone who is a learner is a disciple, who's learning from a master. What are your children learning from you? You can have no expectation that they're just going to figure it out on their own. They need you to show them the way, parents. And this looks like a thousand different things. Bringing them to church, for sure. Talking with them about what they're learning at church. Worshiping as a family. Building up good habits like Bible study and scripture memorization, catechisms, quiet times, regular prayer, any and all of that. Teaching them how to pray by praying with them not just assuming that it's happening behind, behind closed doors. Asking them questions. Letting them ask questions. Being eager to answer their questions. Listening to them. How about this one? Modeling repentance and forgiveness for them so that they have a category to understand the perfect forgiveness that Jesus has bought. It has been said a thousand times in this church and churches like it, but some parents need to hear this again. Even if you do all of that diligently, perfectly, from sunrise to sundown, you cannot save your child. You cannot teach them into heaven. And you are not expected to save your child. You need to free yourself from the guilt of the what-ifs as you look back over the job that you've done as a parent. That bondage of guilt is not for you. It is the Lord who saves. Your children were born sinners. You don't need to teach them how to be bad. That is built in. So all this talk about believing children, children who come to Christ, it's great for those lucky few, but for many of us, our children don't show any fruit of saving faith yet or some do and some don't. If that goes on for a long time, it can be easy to start to write off their bad behavior. It can be easy 
to give up. A pastor friend of mine has a phrase that he uses when someone gets really worked up sharing a story of some, some secular celebrity or politician or somebody who has committed some extreme act of sin. They come in and they're just so anxious and worked up about this story. And he'll say, hey man, heathen's going to heath. <laughs> that, that is a casual way of saying that this is just the way that it is in a fallen world. You, you can't let it get to you. You're not responsible for saving everyone in the world. You're not responsible for sharing the gospel with everyone on earth. Don't expect America to look like New Jerusalem. Sinners are going to sin. But we cannot take that attitude with our kids, with the kids in our church. Yes, your kid is a sinner, was born that way. But he's your sinner. Share the gospel with him. Live the gospel out in front of him. Make the gospel as big and as beautiful as you possibly can so that he might someday see it in you. Don't quit. Keep praying. Don't grow weary. God is capable and able and willing to save. The Lord needs to be the one to light the flame, but you, you can pack their heart with kindling. You cannot heal them, but you can bring them to the healer. You can break a hole in the roof and descend them down if need be. No, you cannot make them drink, but you can lead them to the living water. May it never be said of parents in our church that we didn't lead them. My daughter is a sinner. She needs the good news of Jesus to overwhelm her heart and fill her with saving faith. She needs Jesus more than anything. But I am not just going to sit on my hands and wait for someone else to tell it to her. She has me. She has her mother. She has all of you. God has given all of us to her. Paul says that it's good and right for us to feel that burden of responsibility. To promote the principles of God's kingdom and the health of God's people, children should obediently honor and parents should lovingly disciple. Oak Hill, my brothers and sisters here, whether you're a kid, a parent, we're an innocent bystander. We can't bring this about unless we give the Lord control of our lives and don't ask for that control back. Sometimes I feel like we are trying to live out this supernatural, unimaginable vision for the church with our eyes glued shut. We need His Holy Spirit to guide and lead us. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.